Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I want to bring to you a message I've titled, The Good Fight, Contending Well for the Faith. And as you turn there, I just want to express my thanks to those of you who offered help as far as just airport transportation. Um, This is a trip that we've been planning for several years. Knowing that the IFCA would be having their convention there, we wanted to make it a vacation time as well. So we've got vacation, we have convention, and I'm doing some teaching. Um, so thank you for helping us in make th- making that happen. As we look at First Timothy, as always, I ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to begin reading in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, and jump around a little bit here. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, we read this. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. (coughs) Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Please jump down to verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to the Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. You may be seated. The Puritan William Gurnall writes, In heaven we shall appear not in armor, but in robes of glory. But here our arms are to be worn night and day. We must walk, work, and sleep in our armor, or else we are not true soldiers of Christ. The Christian life is expressed by a Christian battle. Scripture regularly reminds us, reminds each Christian, that we are engaged in an ongoing campaign to contend for the truth. We contend for it personally by adorning ourselves in godliness, contending for truth by exemplifying the very effects of godliness in our lives. But we also contend with it for it corporately as the body of Christ not just as individuals, but as a church, contending for the truth by defending any attacks that any person may leverage against the Lord's truth. The story of God's people 
is told through his people's ongoing defense, his, their continuous defense of that very truth. Our faith is defined by strategic moments in history when God's people recognize the high stakes. And so they willingly defended the integrity of the Christian faith, even at the cost of their own lives. In AD 49, the Council of Jerusalem contended for the faith by defending against those who would add to the salvation requirements, preaching something beyond salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. In AD 325, the Council of Nicaea convened to defend the doctrine of the Trinity. And in 431, the Council of Ephesus convened to defend against Pelagianism. And then the Council of Chalcedon sought to defend the deity of Christ in AD 451. And of course, we know about the 16th century when Martin Luther and the Reformers contended for the faith. And then in our modern era, even now, we're not excluded from the ongoing defense of the truth. In the early 1900s, people like J. Gresham Mackin defended against those who would contend for modernism. And then in the middle of the 1900s, we have those that met in Chicago to produce a statement defending the inerrancy of scripture. And more recently, we have the production of the Nashville Statement and then the statement on social justice and the gospel. All of these are in effect an effort to defend the honor and glory due to the king of ages. As Philip Graham Riken writes, there is never a time when God's people were not in danger of falling into error. Every generation must don the garments of warfare, defending the truth of the Lord. Even the Garden of Eden was not exempted from spiritual warfare. Adam and Eve, having let their guard down, were not ready to contend with the lies that Satan would throw at them. And we know the end result of that. They were deceived. And the effects of that failure are still bearing consequences for us today. Adam and Eve's failure was, of course, very specific it allowed the entrance of sin into the world in a way that would then influence every subsequent generation. And though I don't think all heirs equate the influence of bringing sin into the world, it teaches us a very important lesson, that that's the problem with error. Once it is introduced, it will influence every generation that follows. The battle waged for truth, the battle we wage even now, here in this day will have an influence on the generations to come. That means that every compromise now will be a compromise not just for us. It will be a compromise for our children and for our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and every subsequent generation after that until the Lord returns. Therefore, God's people must be convicted by God's truth, that they may then be convinced to defend God's truth. We're in a time when standing for truth is considered one of the most unloving acts of all. And as a result, few people are willing to publicly commit to the truth of God. The result is a generation of believers that won't fight for anything. In the name of love, 
They stand by in apathy, unwilling to confront error at all. Fearful that they may be judged as judgmental because of their confrontation, they instead choose to cower away from any proclamation of God's word at all. In the name of love, they are unwilling to fight for anything at all. But there is a reason that these verses, 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20, utilize soldier imagery. Maybe it's not fully visible in our English translations, but the text here is suggesting that war is at hand. Words like charge and warfare and shipwreck, combined with the imagery of armor, of faith and good conscience, are all used together to convey combat. And so here Paul urges Timothy to fight the good fight. And so looking at verses 18 and 19, we we learn what it looks like to fight well. As Paul writes, This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith, and a good conscience. We live in a spiritual battle. We are not in training, nor are we awaiting deployment. We are already under orders of our commanding officer, the Lord Jesus Christ, to engage with those who would undermine his very words. And so we must allow this text this morning then to teach us Specifically, I want to teach us three lessons about the spiritual battle in which we've been placed. Please notice first the continuing charge. The continuing charge. Paul tells Timothy, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. The task at hand has already been laid out before Timothy. In the previous verses of chapter 1, including those we read this morning, from verse 3 all the way to verse 8, already we've seen outlined instructions and wise counsel offered to Timothy from Paul, guiding him on how to deal with the current conditions within the Ephesian church. Admittedly, the conditions there are quite grim. False teaching has not only led people astray, but it's causing discord and dissension and division from within the church. It threatens both the current testimony of the church and its future influence on others. The severity of that situation demands a swift response, and that's exactly what has happened. Upon finding how much the church has been, had strayed, leaders were quickly expelled. We see that in verse 20. Hymenaeus and Alexander were were thrown out, and corrective action was taken. And now Timothy is charged to lead this church through its situation. This charge of verse 18, it only continues from the previous verses, when Timothy is told to exhort those in the church not to teach any doctrine that is different or contrary to orthodoxy. Every leader is given this charge, indeed every Christian to some degree, but every leader is given to a a charge to lead God's people in truth and then to protect them from error. 
It is well known that the Lord charged Moses to lead the Israelites in their confrontation with the Pharaoh and then eventually lead them for their exit out of Egypt. Every single one of the prophets, though faced with a society that was rejecting God and rejecting God's authority, they were called upon to confront the people and call them to repentance. To Jonah it was said, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And to Ezekiel the Lord said, And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. This morning we read of Isaiah and his own response to the Lord's question of whom shall I send? And Isaiah responded very enthusiastically, send me. Isaiah's task would be a difficult one. He would be called upon to proclaim the word of God to those who were wandering from it. And in some cases, probably didn't care that they were wandering from it. They didn't want to be confronted with this. And yet he responds with this enthusiastic, I'll go, send me. Like any of those prophets before, Timothy is being called upon to do the same thing. To enter a self-deceived people and confront their hard-heartedness as a body of Christ. The task is perhaps, no doubt, intimidating. And it will definitely be difficult. But it is also both necessary and an act of love. Loving the Lord requires a response in circumstances like these. When his name and his word are under attack, the one who genuinely loves the Lord must defend the Lord. Not that he can't defend himself, but he calls upon us to. But it's also an act of loving others. One who genuinely loves others will pity them, will pity those who persist in error, lamenting what is missed or lost, knowing that they will likely continue in that error and thus probably continuing to sin, missing out on the quality of the relationship that they could have enjoyed otherwise. The loving act is to correct the error. Wanting to see a person flourish in their relationship with God and with others is perhaps one of the most loving acts of all. It's a way in which we love our fellow believers. The task is laid before Timothy here. Commenting on this, C.K. Barrett writes, The charge implies the responsibility laid upon Timothy by his participation in the Christian faith. That is to say that the instruction laid upon Timothy here, it doesn't come as a, Paul, a result of Paul's decree or Paul's instruction. It's simply an expectation of Timothy's position as a believer not even necessarily as a leader. As a believer, he is given this duty, this responsibility to Christ to correct error. All believers are charged with guarding the gospel, stewarding it in their own lives while pointing it to it in the lives of others. 
by God's own words. In passages like 1 Peter 3, 2 Timothy 4, Titus 1, 2 Corinthians 10, every believer is told not only to hold firm to the truth, but then to defend the truth, to guard that gospel. Later on in his second letter to Timothy, Paul writes, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. We have been enlisted. We have been enlisted by Christ, bought by his blood, which flowed from the cross through faith. We have been enlisted into the Lord's army. And so our aim is to do just as Paul tells Timothy, please the one who enlisted us, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian faith demands a response. It is a response of caring for fellow believers when they care not about the heirs of their ways. From a great love sometimes comes great correction. Gaius Octavius, a Roman emperor from 27 BC to AD 14, had a deep sense of moral and social responsibility. He's not a God follower, so we recognize that. But he still had this desire to see his people follow in morality and social responsibility. His desire was to see his own family do the same. His only daughter, who was called Julia the Younger, cared less about that moral responsibility or her societal duties, social duties, and instead lived a very indulgent lifestyle. She engaged in promiscuity and flouted her own moral responsibility, recognizing that detrimental impact of her actions could have on her and somewhat on the family's own reputation standing. Octavius, also known as Augustus, took it upon himself to intervene and protect his daughter from further error. He did so by banishing her. He banished her to the island of Pandateria, and she would be ex exiled there for several years. That seems harsh, but likely it was a very difficult step for Octavius. But he had hoped that the severity of that punishment would reveal to her the severity of her own sins. Ultimately, it worked. Over time, she began to recognize the error of her ways, and she underwent this major transformation. What Octavius had done is prioritized his duty as a father and a guardian and took the necessary steps to correct her behavior and protect her from future decline. As guardians of the gospel, we do the same. Sometimes that means enduring some hard decisions. Though the task is difficult, Timothy is called upon to love his fellow believers by steering them back towards Christ. But these words, they come not just from Paul, and not only as a discipler who is using his wisdom and experience to offer counsel to his disciplee, but Paul says here, my child, my son. <coughs> He's writing as a father giving instructions to a child but again, Paul doesn't write from his own will. He gives Timothy this task 
as Timothy was already given that task from God. And we see that in the second point. And so please note, second, the provocative prophecy. Notice how the text continues. It says, this charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Apparently, some sort of prophecy has been given about Timothy. And all that Paul is doing in this text is urging Timothy to live out what has already been told or proclaimed about Timothy's life. The charge issued from Paul is calling upon Timothy then to just contend for the faith. But Timothy was not selected by Paul. He was selected according to God's will. And that leaves an unanswered question for us. What prophecies? The reality is we don't know. But there is a pattern that is typical in the New Testament and in the early church, something we see in Acts 13. In the beginning of Acts 13, the initial verses tell us of the commissioning of both Paul and Barnabas. And verses 1 through 4 read, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, or Paul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Paul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. At this point, Paul and Barnabas have been chosen by the Lord. They've been set apart for ministry by him. But something happened here in that text, in Acts 13. At the Spirit's leading, they were chosen. But then those gathered around them took time for prayer and fasting and prophesying. This should sound very much like an ordination service of today, when a new pastor is commissioned to go out and lead a church. It was typical at that time during any ordination or any commissioning of an individual, whether it be locally in the church or globally in the Great Commission, there would be a time of biblical exhortation, that there would be a time of preaching of the word and exhorting the individual. That same practice continues today. What we do today is very much grounded in the word of God and the example of church history. And so usually following that ordination and that examination, someone will step up and they will give an admonition and exhortation, both to the one being ordained, but also to the body of Christ. So it's likely that Timothy underwent the same ordination. And after that ordination, there was a time of prophesying or preaching, if you want to call it that, because that's what's going on. Prophesying is simply declaring God's word. And so they would have exhorted Timothy to fulfill the call of his ordination. What the content specifically says or was really doesn't matter to us, other than to know that God's word was likely used to exhort Timothy to do the work that he was called for. 
what really only matters to Timothy is that he knew what that exhortation was. And so Paul chooses this moment to remind Timothy of it. It's interesting that while studying this passage and reading several commentaries from the 16th century, each one of them asks the same thing. Why does Timothy need to be reminded of it? I think it's a good question. If the prophecy was a word of God, a promise of the Lord, there should be no need to remind him of it because God's word always comes to pass. It is always fulfilled. So it can be understood that whatever was said about Timothy at that moment is going to come to pass if it's truly God's will, that it will materialize according to God's will and word. So it's not really necessary to reflect on it again. So why do they do it? There must be a purpose. Purpose is really quite simple. Reflecting on God's promises helps aid a person from becoming lazy because people are lazy. They become apathetic to the Lord's call. They need to be reminded of it. Peter writes of godly character and says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Timothy, like every other believer, has a duty to show that he was a willing servant of God to show that his calling and his election were secured, that he may be stirred up to good works. The task assigned to Timothy, it's, it's a challenging one. It will challenge both his faith and his resilience. And so reminding him of the Lord's promises is simply a way to both strengthen and encourage him to keep at it. Don't run away when it's hard. Timothy has a confirmation to live up to. He is a Christ-centered leader. He's set apart by God. He's been ordained by God and sent by God. His duty, then, is a soldier of Christ. And it was for God. If it was true that Timothy needed to be reminded of his calling, what does that mean for any of us? When we read the word of God, do we do so for head knowledge? Or do we read upon it and find ourselves reminded of the Lord's calling upon our lives. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul writes these words about Timothy. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him, like Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. Clearly, as Paul's on his way to die, Timothy's testimony is one of confirming the prophecies that were said about him. So what were the prophecies laid out about our lives? The word of God tells us and then we must ask, have we confirmed them in our lives? 
the continuing charge is that Timothy would simply live up to the prophetic prophecy or the provocative prophecy. But I want you to note third, the strategic struggle. The strategic struggle noted by the words, wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. To be fought well, every battle must be fought with a plan. Few things reveal the foolishness of man more than a military defeat. On July 8, 1861, the first shots of the Battle of Manassas rang out, indicating a conflict between the soldiers of the North and the soldiers of the South of the United States had begun. War, by this point, had been talked about for some time, so it was no surprise that something was happening. But hearing uh, about that conflict and expecting a full victory from the Union soldiers, socialites and members of high society, they began to rush to the scene for what they would consider to be the summer's social event. Even senators and politicians rushed out to look upon the battle. What they found instead was not the social event of picnics and fine wine, but by July 21st, the Union soldiers would be defeated by the Confederate soldiers. It was unexpected that that would happen at all, and today we now recount it as a battle of Bull Run. Having expected victory to be so easy, the soldiers let their guard down, and more importantly, the leaders of the soldiers let their guard down. They failed to adequately prepare the soldiers through training and through the necessary discipline. And so when the enemy attacked, they weren't ready. Equated to the Christian life, it is a similar battle that we find ourselves in as well. That we cannot let our guards down. We need to be ongoing in our discipline and in our preparedness. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, it says in 2 Corinthians 10.3. We are engaged in a spiritual battle. And yet, thankfully, the Lord has outlined a strategy for us. We are called to engage in that spiritual battle for the Lord. And we get a sense of what that looks like in this letter to Timothy. Paul writes, wage the good warfare. The talk about good warfare suggests that there must be a fight out there that's not good. And then later on, the letter will go on to talk of those fights that aren't good, of those needless fights. But the fight that Timothy is called to engage in here is good. Or even better translated, if we were to translate that word accurately, it's not just good, it's noble. To engage in a spiritual battle is a noble endeavor because it is undertaken on behalf of a noble king, the king of the ages. He is noble in character and noble in causes. And so any battle that is legitimately, legitimately engaged in on his behalf is a noble struggle. As Denny Burke Burke says, this is a fight worth having because it contends for something very precious, human souls. The struggle of the Christian life is spiritual in nature. Not flesh against flesh, but a struggle for human souls. It is this that Timothy is wrestling against. The false teachers are not only leading themselves astray, but they're taking others with them. 
And so now the stakes become raised. This is not just an entanglement of war. This is now a rescue mission. Ultimately, the false teachers, they will be held accountable. And the people themselves are responsible for allowing themselves to be deceived. But neither of those gives Timothy an excuse to avoid his calling that was prophesied about him. Rather, he continues to labor all the more, giving confirmation to those prophecies and his continuous calling from the Lord. The strategy for this struggle, the battle plan for this war, though, it's not quite as we would expect because the plan laid out in our text is not offensive. It actually begins with a defense first. Paul does not tell Timothy to engage in the opponents directly first. He does not say, go out and fire your shots. But rather, it says, begin with yourself. The strategy of good warfare here is Timothy's own faith and his own conscience. He's supposed to don his armor first. The definition of the word for used for faith here truly signifies good doctrine. It is used to convey the idea that to fight the good fight, one must be grounded in truth, unswayed by human logic and wisdom, but looking at the truth of the Lord. The second, then, is good conscience. That is to have a character that is above reproach. As one person says, a good conscience is a life lived blameless before God and others. It is not perfection, but it is life against which no one can bring a legitimate charge. Of course, we must remember that our doctrine may be tainted by our own sin, and so sometimes it may be wrong. At the same time, our consciences may be seared, as we saw for some in Ephesus. So you need both faith or good doctrine, and a good conscience. They work together. Good doctrine regulates a good conscience, and good conscience will regulate good doctrine. These two qualities, faith and conscience, truth and morality, they're always linked together in Scripture. You should notice something important about these qualities here in our text. They're the same ones mentioned in verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In issuing the charge to Timothy to confront the false teachers, Paul says the aim is love. And that love comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. If you want a more detailed discussion about that, then you can go listen to the message on April 30th on that text. But this tells us then something about the strategy for the good fight. First, it begins defensively by putting on the armor, good doctrine, good conscience. But it is also offensive through love. Defensively, we engage in spiritual warfare by protecting ourselves with good doctrine and good conscience. But from verse 5, we see that the result of those is love. That we show a genuine, God-like, Christ-like love. Our strategy to defend God's truth 
is to do so offensively through love. As God defines love, not as we define it. And love does confront. And then we do so defensively through the good doctrine and good conscience. A good strategy for any battle will include both offense and defense. To fight well, you always need both. If you neglect one or the other, you risk defeat. As believers, we need both in our lives. Defending our lives from an attack of spiritual enemies and then advancing forward by speaking the truth in love, as it says in Ephesians. The Christian faith is a bold faith because it is worth being defended. It will be defended not by arms and weapons, though, but by words and prayers. A few weeks ago, I shared with you the story of Thomas Bilney. Thomas Bilney was a man who would be burned at the stake for not recanting his faith. His most notable convert was an English reformer, a man by the name of Hugh Latimer. Like Bilney, Latimer would also be burned at the stake for his faith. But during Latimer's life, he was a known preacher, and he would never hold back from preaching the truth. On one occasion, he was invited to speak at Hampton Court before King Henry VIII. Predictably, he offended the king. And Henry commanded Latimer to preach the following Sunday and to make an apology to the king. So Latimer returned the next Sunday. And he began his preaching not by addressing those there, but first by addressing himself. And he says, Hugh Latimer... Do you know before whom you are to speak this day? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away your life if you offend him. Therefore, take heed that you speak not a word that may displease. But then consider well, Hugh. Do you know from where you come? Upon whose message are you sent? even by the great and mighty God who is all present and who beholds all the ways and who is able to cast your soul into hell. Therefore, take care that you deliver your message faithfully. And then Hugh Latimer began to preach. And he preached the exact same message that he preached the week before. This time with more energy. The Christian faith is a bold faith. In the first century after Christ's resurrection, Christians did not enjoy a wide acceptance. They had to boldly fight for their faith, and they did so in a unique way. In the Greco-Roman world of the day, the Christian faith had something different to offer to the people. This was a world that valued intellectual assent, as seen by how much they valued philosophies. And the philosophers of the day were highly revered. And so intellect was lauded as the most important virtue and most important attribute of a person. But while the philosophers theorized about the ways of the world, the Christians of the day were able to offer a coherent view of the world, a view that was governed and guided by love, and which each element had its place, especially Christ. 
And then when confronted with arguments about their faith, the Christians were able to defend it. They began to to defend it both in writings and in their speaking. And by the 200s, we have systematic theologies that were beginning to be developed and shared and published to show the cohesion of the Christian faith and to be able to offer a defense to all those who may argue with it. Many tried to argue against the followers of Christ. And they considered Christianity to be nothing more than any of these Eastern mysterious religions that overtook the day. But the Christians did something that those religions did not do. First, they had a willingness to publicly defend their faith whenever they're given the opportunity. We see this in the book of Acts. It is modeled there as defenses of Peter rising up on the day of Pentecost or Stephen when he's about to be stoned to death. And even Paul, throughout the book of Acts, spends his time defending the faith in front of the people. I remember a few years ago when Ken Ham, uh, the man behind the vision for the Creation Center, the, the Ark Museum, he challenged Bill Nye or invited him for a debate. It was an audacious invitation, but truly wasn't one without precedent. The Christian faith is worthy of defense, and it requires a defense. Few would do the steps that Ken Ham took today. We don't see that, but I just listed out all the councils from church history in which there was a precedent set there. Christians publicly defend their, their faith. But the second difference between the Christians and other religions is their invitation to others. While other religions, and especially those philosophies, were reserved only for those that were most intellectually attuned, the intellectual elite, Christians opened their arms to anybody and to everybody. Eventually, that intellectual ascent of the faith led to greater acceptance in society. Even those who did not practice Christianity began to accept it as a legitimate cause and a legitimate form of worship. There are always critics, but Christianity by its own defense had become an acceptable form of worship in that era. Eventually, that increase in presence, though, would lead to an increase in persecution, but that's another story. The point is that this is a bold faith we must be willing to defend the faith, rightly dividing between truth and error. It calls upon every believer to wage a good warfare, holding to the good doctrine and a good conscience. It is an act of love. First, it loves God. It loves God by saying that I love God enough to put my life on the line because he put his life on the line for me. And I do so not so that my name will be proclaimed, but so his name will be proclaimed. It's also an act of loving others. Loving them so much that we're willing to be uncomfortable and willing to allow ourselves to fall into attack so that we may help them avoid the error of their ways. This is a bold faith. But are we bold enough to love God and love others by putting our own reputation on the line for the sake of his reputation? And are we willing to do so humbly, recognizing we may be wrong too?
Let's pray. Our Father God, you are King of the ages, a noble, good King, Lord, worthy of all honor, worthy of all glory and honor and respect, Lord. And so, Father, being a truthful Lord, we know that all that goes out from your mouth is truth. It is meant to pierce hearts and change lives, Lord. Father, as it goes out and, and convicts and convinces, Lord, first off, may we bring ourselves under submission to it, seeing it for a good gift from you. But also, Lord, may it convince us of our need to defend it when those who seek to undermine it would launch their attacks, Lord. Father, may we come underneath your word that we may know it even in order to defend it. And Father, may we defend not our preferences, but your truth, Lord. May we use it in a way that would see people guided towards you so that they may come to know and love you more. May this be our conviction of today. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.